Amen. A tax lawyer was lying on his deathbed, frantically thumbing through a little used Bible. A friend who was visiting during his final hours replied, Harvey, I didn't know you were religious. And the lawyer replied, I'm not. I'm looking for a loophole. (laughs) Much of the doctrine of hell has been concerned with just that, a loophole. J.C. Ryle, though, says this, disbelieve hell and you unscrew, unsettle, and unpin everything in Scripture. And I think most people today either ignore the idea of hell or expect to go to heaven. We don't like to think about it. When's the last time you heard a sermon on hell? In fact, the last time I preached a sermon on hell was 2010. Uh, But when we were putting together this sermon series talking about heaven, we did say, you know, we can't really talk about heaven and not talk also about hell. But the universalist idea that everyone is going to go to heaven uh, has seeped into most of our society and has entered into the church as well. And even in the church, there's much disagreement on hell. Is it a real physical place? With real flames, will, be, will people be conscious there? Is it a temporary or permanent place? Are the descriptions just metaphors? It's good questions. But the idea of hell is addressed throughout the Bible. And it's a serious issue that we cannot avoid. So I want us to take some time this morning to look at hell, hopefully through a biblical lens. And we are taking a very broad overview. In fact, as we were going through this sermon, I thought we could do a whole series just on this very issue. But in the Old Testament, the descriptions of hell include images of burning lakes, dark pits, shadowy realms filled with demons and beasts, images that I really don't like to think about. Uh, The Old Testament concept of hell, not quite as developed as in the New Testament, but again, it is never portrayed as a place you want to go or be. In the New Testament, we have biblical writers giving us a, a broader view of what hell is like. And in the time that Jesus lived in the first century, hell was understood as a a physical destination and punishment for those who rejected Christ. But the images of hell that we have, they don't fit well with our modern world. Some Christians even find the idea of hell embarrassing, like it's some superstition or a concept of an ancient culture that was made up just to keep people in line and to scare them into obedience. And others feel that a loving God would never uh, allow anyone to suffer eternal torment. But Jesus talked about hell. In fact, he told an interesting parable in the Gospel of Luke about a beggar named Lazarus. Do you remember the story? The beggar and the rich man. Jesus says that there was a certain rich man and this had a beggar named Lazarus who would lay down at the gate of his home every day. And this Lazarus longed to eat just the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And this poor man Lazarus died and it says he was carried away by the angels to heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And the rich man was in hell and was tormented. But he could look through and see Lazarus in heaven with Abraham. And he cried out to Abraham to have mercy and send Lazarus down to him to just dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. 
But Abraham reminded the rich man of all that he had on earth. And now he is receiving what he sowed. And that there's this great chasm between heaven and hell that cannot be breached. And so the rich man then begged him to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his brothers about what was to come. And Abraham tells him, you have Moses and the prophets. That should be enough. You should listen to them. Basically, he's saying you have this. You should read it. They should read it because that's what he talks about. But the rich man says, no, they won't listen to the Bible. So, so send back Lazarus, the rich man begs. Send him back from the dead because surely they will listen to a dead man. And how does Abraham reply? If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. It's a powerful parable and story. But taken as Jesus' own words, this account to me clearly tells us what happens to those who die outside of a meaningful relationship with Jesus. They go to hell, or as the Greek puts it, Hades, where they're aware of their misery and don't want their loved ones to be there. Now, I know this is a parable, but it's also fascinating to me that this parable is the only parable of Jesus that has a name attached to it. Did you know that? Lazarus. Isn't that fascinating? Why would he make up the name Lazarus? Especially because it's confusing because Jesus has another friend named Lazarus. Remember, he raises him from the dead. So why does Jesus in this one parable name this one beggar Lazarus? To me, I think it's possible that he could be relating to an actual person that he's talking about and saying it as a parable. But also Paul points out in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, he says this, they will be punished with eternal destruction forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. It's, this shows us that hell is not just a place of torment, but also a place of separation from God. Now, many people today live in separation from God, and they think that hell won't be that much different from life on earth. But I think they take for granted the goodness that's all around us. Because separation from God means separation from all that is good and right and true and wonderful and being exposed to only what is wrong and false and horrible. Imagine stepping out of your house one morning only to, to discover that every bit of beauty is gone from this earth. All that you like, that makes you feel good, that makes life worth living has disappeared. All that is left is hideous and obscene. That's the absence of God, of goodness and light, means forever being in the presence of evil and darkness. But we were not created for that destiny. He made us to be with him. But in any discussion of hell, the same questions almost always come up. And the first one is this. If God is so loving and gracious, why would he send people to hell? It's a good question. If God is so loving and gracious, why would he send people to hell? And the answer is, is so simple. It may seem ridiculous, but I believe it's true. God never sent any human to hell and he never will. We choose it. We choose it. Hell wasn't made for people and God doesn't want anyone to go there, but he allows us to choose eternal life or eternal death. He doesn't want anyone to go there, but God is utter goodness. He is absolute 
holiness. And I think because we don't understand holiness, sometimes we don't understand hell. And evil cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Without Christ, our goodness isn't enough. But he allows us to choose. He doesn't force us. But it also brings up the question, what about people who die without hearing the good news of Jesus? This is a tough one. This is a good question. Because if God is righteous, how could it be fair to punish someone for being born in a place and a time where he or she could never hear the gospel? That is the question. But I think part of our answer is found in John's gospel. John 1, 9, he says this, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I believe God reveals himself to everyone, not just some. In Methodist terms, you Methodist Wesleyan, this is called prevenient grace. You can look it up, those of you who have no idea. P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T, prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before salvation, that God seeks after us, that God gives light to everyone. And also from Romans, Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. I believe God reveals himself to everybody in some way or another. So let me give you an example. Picture this, and this is not original with me. But imagine this, a tribal hunter in the jungles of Indonesia is picking his way through heavy jungle foliage outside his village early one morning. In the tangle of vines and branches, he sees a a beautiful butterfly perched motionless on the edge of a leaf. Its delicate, delicate beauty takes his breath away. And in that moment, he senses that someone made it. That's called grace. Someone bigger and more powerful than anyone he's ever known. It occurs to him that this someone has provided for everything. He has known the difference between right and wrong since he was a child. But now he's overwhelmed by a feeling that there's something more. And that all he has to do is say yes to this someone. He has received the light. It's sufficient. If he embraces it, he will receive eternal life, even though he doesn't yet know that this gift has a name, Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. I also believe that there is no other name under heaven in which we can be saved except through Jesus. And although it seems that there will be some who enter heaven based on such an experience, God wants his people to keep telling others about him because we want to know the fullness of Christ. I believe that everyone has the opportunity to say yes to God in some way or another, but it is our job to offer that light to everyone. It's God's job to decide who receives that light. Third question, how do we handle the concept of unending torture? Well, we have two choices with this concept. Deny the New Testament and what it says or believe what Scripture says. For the Bible says that the fiery torture in place that was prepared for the devil and his angels will also be peopled with unrepentant humans. Now, we don't know if the images used of hell are literal or figurative, but it doesn't diminish their real effects. 
One is neither less punishing nor better than the other. For hell is ultimately separation from God. Not only separation from all that is good, but also integration with all that is evil. Hence the punishment of hell may be less about God designed a place for, uh, about how God designed a place for torture and suffering and more about how those that are there will inflict physical pain on each other. Those whose characteristics have been shaped by violence may continue to feed on violence there as well. A fourth question, why would God create a world in which we have the capacity to choose something so horrifying? See, God did not make hell for humans, but for the devil and his demons. However, we can will it for ourselves. Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. See, God is love, and God desires love from us, unconditional love, freely given. You see, genuine love requires the freedom to choose. He created us with free will, and we are able to reject him. This choice reveals something profoundly mysterious and tender about God. He longs for intimacy with us. Let that settle in for a moment. The all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present one wants closeness for you and me. God's desire is so strong that he made the issue plain right from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to make this, this is God speaking, I'm going to make this as easy as I can for you. I'm giving you a garden. And I'm inviting you to pick any fruit you want. All you see is yours. Enjoy it. I made just one rule. So you understand what it is to obey and depend on me. There is one tree you may not touch. Just one. But this is for your own good. And you must trust me. I'll even explain why I don't want you to eat from this tree. You see, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you were to eat from it, you would be choosing to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. But God says, that's my role. You have yours. Care for and enjoy the rest of the garden, but do not try to be me. Don't try to decide on your own what is good and what is evil. I'll handle that. Well, you know the rest of the story. In fact, let's turn back to the story that Darren read at the beginning of the sermon from Matthew. You remember the parable? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a king who is throwing a huge wedding party for his son. Now imagine hearing this story from a first century perspective. You're going to have to place yourself in the story for just a moment. The king is giving you an invitation. It would be crazy not to accept it. In fact, it would most likely mean death. An invitation from the king is not to be taken lightly. But this isn't an invitation to something boring and dreadful. This is an invitation to a party. One in which you will probably see food and taste food that you could never experience before. This is an incredible invitation to dance and to celebrate and not to work. 
So imagine being the first hearers of the story when the king sent out the second invitation and notified everyone that the food was ready. They refused to come. Can you imagine? So the king sent out other servants to tell them, the party is ready, come on, come on in. But they ignored them. In fact, some even seized the messengers, insulted them and killed them. Are they crazy? Why would you do that? How could they dare betray the king's kindness? You can imagine the king was outraged and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. So what did the king do? He invited you. But you weren't worthy to come, but he still invited you. (laughs) He invited everyone. Everyone was invited to the party now. So the servants brought in everyone they could find. And as the king is going through the banquet hall, meeting his guests, he noticed a man wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. They were dirty. And the king asked the man, friend, how is that that you are here without the wedding robe? But he had no reply. And the king said, throw him out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The man didn't even have a reply. His response or lack of response to grace was insulting. This is where you might not understand this part of the text. You see, patrons invited to a party were expected to respond in honor. You see, for ancient feasts of this kind, it was unthinkable to arrive at a wedding without clean clothes. They didn't have to be expensive clothes. But here's the kicker. At parties like this, wedding parties, the king would have provided the robe for you to wear. All you had to do was put it on. All you had to do was put the robe on. The message is clear. God has done everything He could do to get us to come to the party. He's even provided the clothes for us to wear. But it's our choice. Will we put them on? Even when the guest didn't have on the right clothes, how did he respond? He didn't. He didn't. He didn't say anything. How will you respond to the invitation from the king? Lest you miss the first invitation, I want to invite you again. The King of Kings has invited you to his party. In order to attend the party, though, we must respond to his invitation of grace. Accept Christ and repent of our sins. And then we can be a part of the party. But it is our choice. God wants us to choose his love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here in your presence, I'm aware of your amazing grace. And also aware of your holiness. And I thank you, God, that you have invited all of us to be in relationship with you.
And so in this moment, if there are some here this morning who have never made that commitment to you, Heavenly Father, will you speak to them right now and may they say a prayer of acceptance to you even in this moment. I thank you, God, for the grace that you have given us. Father, we do repent of our sin and confess that we are not worthy. But thank you that you even provide the robe that you even invited us. Help us to not take for granted that grace. And help those of us who are clothed in the robe of Jesus to shine that light, to invite others to the party. Forgive us when we don't. Guide us in your truth. And we thank you for your love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.